I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Gabe Freemuth, and I am pleased to welcome you all back to our newest installment of Dorkfest, the podcast. Here on Rooftop Patrol with me on this rainy, red-skied, moonlit night in Gotham is the commissioner himself, Josh Freemuth. How's the night, Josh? Mount the curb! That's just such a good quote to pull out. Um, back in the Batcave, we've got Jordan Freemuth running experiments on our latest case of the chemical syndicate. Jordan, any clues? None to speak of. Keep pounding the pavement. I'm certain we'll, we'll, we'll uh, do some gumshoe work. We'll get it done. Oh, and Dan Freemuth has just stepped out of a board meeting at Wayne Enterprises, making sure our research and development department is well-funded and its prototypes are off the books. Let me get this straight, gents. You think that your moderator, one of the smartest, most clever dorks in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands. And your plan is to try and outdork him? Good luck. I'll just give those plans back across the table there. It's, uh, it's great to have you guys here. It's great to have everybody here with us today as we do another one of our deep dives, although there always seems to be more to discuss, no matter uh, <laughs> how deep we try and dive. You've heard us talk a lot about the dorky ties that bind uh, for us, Star Trek, Star Wars, James Bond, Indiana Jones being probably our grand slam. Uh, the things that felt like they've always been there, they're part of our lives. But there are other worlds than these. And for me, among the most rich and just plain awesome, is the Cape Crusader, the world's greatest detective, the Dark Knight, the Batman. And before we do a police Zeppelin sweep of that particular neighborhood of Gotham, let's get into a warm-up question. Um, get those atomic batteries to power and turbines to speed. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? No? Sorry, I always ask that of all my dorks. Uh, how about this, let's try this. What was your favorite Batman toy growing up? There was, uh, Certainly no shortage to choose from, as I recall. So, uh, Dan, why don't we go to you first? Do you have recollections of a favorite Batman toy? I absolutely do. I appreciate this warm-up question because it was exceedingly easy for me to answer. Heard the question and knew instantly what my selection was going to be. First of all, I have to go back to Batman the Animated Series. We're going to touch on that a whole bunch, but I think some of the best Batman toys came from Batman the Animated Series. And it's a very specific version of a Batman figure from the Animated Series. It is Combat Belt Batman. Now, there were so many different iterations of Batman that came out in action figure form from the animated series. I did a modicum of Google research and in about 30 seconds came up with infrared Batman, lightning strike Batman, Mechwing Batman, ground assault Batman, turbo jet Batman, and night star Batman. These were all just totally ridiculous versions of Batman that were created for action figure fun. But combat belt Batman was the Batman from the show. He had the same color scheme, the same look, came with the firing grappling hook and missile, the handcuffs to put on the baddies, came with the utility belt that you could strap on him. I remember this, this was, you always wanted action figures that were truly reminiscent of the characters that you enjoy in movies and in TV shows and combat belt Batman was exactly that for me from the animated series. That is fantastic. I think I remember the toy in question you're talking about. Um, I think by the time I encountered him at your house, he was missing some of his components. And I wish that I still had him now because mint on card, that figure is selling for about two to $300 on eBay right now. Wow, seriously? 
Yes, that is a fact. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, Josh, let's go to you. What uh, Do you have a favorite Batman toy? Absolutely. I'm going the vehicle route, uh, again, to Batman the Animated Series, and I'm going to snag the Batmobile. It had a cool little flip top where you would insert your Batman or anybody, any villain who might have been hijacking the Batmobile. And then that cockpit area would slide out the back and wings would flip out to the side to deploy a little pursuit jet. It also had uh, the little Aston Martin style hubcap spikes on the tires. Uh, Just an incredibly cool Batmobile toy. It was always my favorite pretty sure it was Dan's and I rarely got to play for it, play with it. And that's probably why I still think of it so fondly. I got to say this exact toy, not only did I have one and enjoy many hours with it myself, sorry, Josh, but uh, it was on my short list of what my answer to this question would be too. That is an all time classic toy vehicle. The jet that slides out the back, you know, for escape situations. And yeah, you've got the, the tire spikes. I had forgotten about those until you just mentioned them. Ah, that's just a, a tremendous, and what a design classic is that Batmobile. Just another thing that you'll hear us talk about that the animated series got very, very right. For myself, um, I thought a bit about it. I'm going to go Dan's route. I love that Batmobile. There was another vehicle that I won't mention here in case Jordan is going to uh, that I, I liked very much. But for me, I think my favorite Batman toy growing up was, uh, it was a Batman, and it was from the 89, Batman 89 movie uh, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. And this particular Batman you know, wasn't terribly poseable, but he had a cape that was removable and he had uh, his utility belt would zip out like a grapple and you could put it in his hand. One of his hands was sort of curled so it could grip things. Uh, he came with a batarang. He came with the grapple gun. He came with a couple of things like that. And, he, you know, there were vehicles you could fit him in and all that. But that belt, man, I love that he had, he could, just, he could just pull the belt right out there and there's the grapple. And that was, uh, that too is one of my favorite pieces of the bat arsenal. Jordan, take us home. What is the, did you have a favorite toy here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I could talk about this for the entire show, but I, I, I will try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, you know, Josh definitely pointed out the toy that immediately came to mind, what would have been my first choice, the Batmobile with the launching pursuit jet um, that, that comes out the back of it. Um, some other ones that I thought of, too, um, you had specifically the, the animated character of the Man Bat, Always thought that was a really, really cool design. Um, Clayface was another cool one, too. Had the launching spike ball that came out of his arm, um, which was just a fantastic one. I wrote down Mr. Freeze, too, as an option. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, like, there's not really anything that special about that toy. It's just that the design of that character is so cool. And then since you can hold it in toy form, that becomes cool. So those are all cool choices, but the one that I'm going to go with, I'm also going to go down the vehicle route that Josh just mentioned, um, and I am going to select the Joker-mobile. The front of it was sort of a Joker face and had a smiling projectile that came out the front of it. You also had some, like, turrets uh, along the front of it, and just, like, very cool color scheme to it. Um, so, of all of those choices, my, my favorite Batman toy behind the Batmobile would be the Joker-mobile. Great chaos pick there, uh, Jordan. That's uh, a really nice, uh, happy face wrench thrown into the works here. That's another, uh, I had forgotten about that toy too. And, and yeah, boy, it just goes to show that uh, any beloved children's property is going to get just the absolute bejesus merchandised out of it for as long as people can stretch that dollar. But, you know, we'll have fun with it too. So in the end, it all works out. 
certainly it's always been a lot of fun making up our own Batman stories with this stuff. And that was, uh, you know, always the point. And holy Hasbro dorks, you know, exemplary work. So with that, let's about face, let's tap some keys on the piano, turn the hands on the clock face and press the button beneath the bust of Shakespeare and enter the Batcave. Today, we're talking about all things Batman. This is a uh, character that has endured for nearly a century. And many of the more famous characters associated with Batman, including Catwoman, Robin, uh, the Joker in particular, are all celebrating their 80th anniversaries this year. Because as you may know, I am a dork. I want to provide some background on our case before we uh, delve too greedily and too deep. The character we're talking about, Batman, uh, began life in the May issue of Detective Comics 27 in 1939. And that's almost a full year after a character called Superman debuted in Action Comics number one in June of the previous year. That's only important because Batman was a character tailor-made, assembled, uh, in reaction to the arguably more inspired phenomenon that Superman was. Both characters are published by National Comics, which would go on later to become DC Comics. And Batman from the get-go was a pulp hero. I, I mentioned that he was kind of assembled. He is derived from and owes pieces of himself to a host of sources that came before him. Uh, there's Zorro, there's the Phantom, Sherlock Holmes. There's uh, another early 1930s comics character called the Black Bat, if you can believe that. There's a 1930 movie titled The Bat Whispers that the creators cited as uh, some visual inspiration from the villain. Uh, his supporting cast would be drawn from other expressionist and noir tropes, films like uh, 1928's The Man Who Laughs. If you were to look at a picture of the actor Conrad Veidt in, uh, in that movie, I think you'll wonder um, exactly how maybe they got away with it, I think, as uh, Grant Morrison quotes in his book. And other classic folktales and literature, Robin Hood, Alice in Wonderland, you know, all sort of have influence on this. Um, he came from the best parts of a dozen characters. And there's a healthy sprinkling of inspiration from the original creators and eventual other artists that broadened Batman's world over the years. Uh, two folks in particular who I want to mention in the creation of Batman are, can you believe it, his creators, uh, one Bob Kane and the lesser known Bill Finger. Bob Kane was the artist. He had the original conception of the Batman, if you can hear the hyphenation there, as in Spider-Man, as he was originally thought of. Um, and you may have guessed because his is the name you know, but he was the more commercially savvy of the pair. Bob Kane came up with the early design and the inspiration. And actually, if you watch uh, Tim Burton's 1989 movie, you can see him early on in the movie as the police sketch artist who makes fun of Robert Wohl's character, Alexander Knox, handing him a joke Batman picture. But the writer early on of a lot of the Batman stories and, and plot, uh, Bill Finger, he's the man responsible for a huge portion of the early expansion of the character and his cast. And I just want to, by way of illustration, uh, rattle off a few iconic elements that are attributable to Bill Finger, such as the name of Batman's secret identity, Bruce Wayne, uh, the design of bat-eared cowl instead of just a plain domino mask, Batcave, the Batmobile, Alfred Pennyworth, Robin, Catwoman, some of the Joker, Riddler, Clayface, some of the Scarecrow, and not to mention Thomas and Martha Wayne and the whole backstory of how and why Bruce Wayne became the Batman. The list goes on. Uh, his is a name that is relatively lost to history. Uh, his first major sort of public credit was actually in the uh, 2016 Batman v Superman movie. Uh, his first public credit ever for a Batman story was a 1966 episode of the Adam West Batman series that featured a villain we may touch on later, thanks to the 90s absolutely stellar aforementioned animated series. He wrote an episode with, uh, containing the Clock King. So uh, just because his is a name that has been lost to history uh, in a way, I, I want to just give some credit where it's due there. Uh, there are a host, though, of creators who are responsible for the richness of Batman's story that has allowed 
uh, for so many wonderful adaptations over the years. And that's really what we're going to focus on today, a lot of the other media. Uh, this is, All the comic stuff is kind of the soil out of which a lot of the adaptations we loved and we'll talk about are, are uh, from which it grew. I'll probably drop some comic names as we go over the course of episode, uh, as we go over the course of this episode, just to pay tribute. But in the interest of time, let's uh, cut to the chase and proceed with our one point question. Josh, we're going to go to you first with this one. One of these adaptations I mentioned, what's a notable one uh, when it comes to Batman? What's a notable version of Batman? So for me, the most notable is Batman the Animated Series uh, from from the mid-90s. I watched this when I was, you know, 10 to 13 years old after school playing with these toys that we were talking about. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Gabe as you're describing the comic history, you know, the the in visual media, the closest thing to a comic book is these it is like a half hour cartoon show, you know, short isolated episodes that are easily uh, replicable that you can tell a lot of different stories, uh, introduce a whole bunch of different characters. You can kind of do whatever you want because you're not limited by a special effects budget. You're just limited by what you can draw. Batman, the animated series drew some incredible pictures. The, the, the visual of Batman in that animated series is simple and striking. It, it, it is intimidating, but also, you know, when Batman is called upon to be heroic and, uh, or comforting, uh, that works as well. Uh, the villains are drawn exceedingly well. The Batmobile, as I've already touched on, uh, is, is a beautifully drawn Batmobile. It's, as you can probably tell, it's my favorite adaptation of, of Batman, and it is kind of what I always reference back to. There have been a lot of movies that I've seen since, and in my head, I'm always sort of thinking, how does this match up to the animated series that I love? I you know can't rattle off the, the names of every episode that I, I love, but um, The Last Laugh, Heart of Ice... On, on Leather Wings is, is fantastic, and a whole slew of others that I'm sure you guys can help me out with. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the baton there, Josh, and gladly run with it a little bit as it relates to Batman the Animated Series. I think what made this version of Batman so notable was their ability to make, as you said, Josh, simple but striking visuals, but also so much depth to this show. Yes, it was a cartoon, and yes, it ran in that post-school kind of kids time slot, but there was a lot of meat on this bone. Across four seasons, they dealt with some heavy stuff, and they weren't afraid to invoke emotion and intensity into these episodes. You think about the Two-Face, two-part episode. We had so much tremendous buildup with Harvey Dent and his relationship with Bruce Wayne, that there was tremendous payoff when that finally, you know, came to realization in that two-part episode. You think about the Rachel Ghoul two-parter as well. And then another episode that I've always enjoyed, and I think a big reason why is because it, it highlights so many of the great villains that were part of Batman the Animated Series is the episode Almost Got Him, where they're around the poker table talking about how they almost got Batman. And for anybody who has not seen it, I'm not going to spoil the ending. It's got a little bit of a 
twist to the end, but just a tremendous, tremendous adaptation of Batman because they had fun, but there was also depth to it. And we have to mention, we have to extol the virtues of Kevin Conroy. His voice work is really the seminal voice version of Batman. When you think about that voice of Batman, or at least when I hear any Batman voice, Josh, you mentioned how you basically stack every version of Batman or every visual of Batman against the animated series. I stack up any Batman voice against Kevin Conroy, and I think he's at the absolute top of the list. It's why after the animated series, he reprised that role in other uh, animated versions and in video game format. I just think it did a tremendous job of bringing depth, but an enjoyability factor while also staying very true to the original, you know, Batman material. Yeah, we're going to talk about this later, but Dan, you're so right that the the Batman voice is something that is so tricky um, to, to really get right. And I think that you are very right that Kevin Conroy, perhaps more so than any other iteration of Batman, got that right. You know, Dan and Josh, you're also right in that what makes the animated series version of Batman, but then also just the animated series of Batman in general, so great is the depth, but then also the variety. Dan, you talked about the variety in terms of storytelling with the with that great episode that I hadn't remembered until you just mentioned it, but almost got it. It's a fantastic episode, and you have a very different type of story being told there. Then also, as we already mentioned, you have the variety of villains, and that's not something that's unique necessarily to the animated series. That, as Gabe talked about in the opening, has its beginnings in the comic book, the animated series did a great job of fleshing a lot of that out. Um, and then the depth, too, that's something that continued up until a couple of years ago. Um, on HBO, there's Batman the Killing Joke, which, which is, you know, an hour-long animated series episode. And with that, you know, in part because it's on HBO, they have the ability to go in much darker directions. Um, it's definitely a rougher take on the stories of the Cape Crusader. But along with that too, in, in terms of the depth and the nuance of the characters, I wanted to mention another iteration of Batman that I find to be notable, and that's the Christian Bale version. Now, he doesn't get everything right. We can lay that out right now. But I think the nuance of the character that you get over the course of the three movies is admirable, especially in Batman Begins. You get a nuanced take on the backstory. I'm thinking specifically of the backstory of you know uh, Bruce Wayne hunting down the person that killed his parents and nearly shooting him. And, and, it's this, and it's this very suspenseful moment, but I think it's something you don't necessarily get in these other iterations. You know that part of the reason that Batman became who he is was because of the death of his parents, but you don't necessarily get all of the details leading directly up to that. So in addition to Batman the Animated Series being a very notable one, I also wanted to bring up Christian Bale as a notable version as well. You're absolutely right there, Jordy. Christian Bale, extremely notable. Three tremendous movies with him. But I think what makes his rendition of Batman so notable is that it was so enjoyable and so gritty and so real. And this on the heels of two other quote-unquote notable versions of Batman, that being Val Kilmer's Batman from Batman Forever and then George Clooney's Batman from Batman and Robin. These are movies that we've seen a number of times. I've seen Batman Forever probably more times than I care to admit. These are very comic-y, gimmicky, 
Batman Forever in particular is a very 90s movie. That movie just reeks of the mid-90s and not necessarily in a good way. These movies are panned for not being particularly good and not having a huge amount of strengths to them, but those are two marquee actors playing a very important character as it relates, yes, to our dorkdom, but also dorkdom for many others. And the sort of failures of those, again, notable renditions, I think that just enhances Christian Bale's um, notable performance that much more. And speaks to the difficulty of portraying that role, right? You have George Clooney and Val Kilmer, who are legitimately good actors who presented legitimately underwhelming performances. Also have to give a shout out to Adam West in the as the first to portray the bat on the screen. I have not seen the the movie, the 1966 movie in quite a long time, but I remember really enjoying it as a kid. And you know, bat, Batman is is for kids as well as adults, maybe originally for kids more than adults. And I, I, I think, uh, Dan, you mentioned uh, before the show that you watched that movie recently and it did not live up to what you had remembered. And I'm happy to hear you say that. So now I could know to just leave that in my memory. But I do remember really enjoying it as a kid. So shout out Adam West. Zap! Pow! Wham! You're right, Josh. I did actually watch that movie within the last calendar year. And while the first five to ten minutes is genuinely amusing and nostalgic, the same gag goes on for the next 90 minutes, and it does become a little much to watch at times. That said, as you mentioned, Adam West really, you know, put the Batman on the TV screen. And so for that, we should be forever uh, in his debt for the job that he did there. And he's been able to sort of reprise that, at least vocally at times, which is which has been fun. But yes, sort of the original on-screen Batman doesn't necessarily hold up when you compare that to, let's say, the grittiness of a Christian Bale Batman. It remains true, though, that Adam West it was one of the more comic-accurate Batman to his day. Um, as far as an adaptation goes. That, that was about the time when, yeah, the, um, even in the comics, we're talking in the comics code time, so there was a certain uh, enforcement in place as to what could be portrayed or not. So the stories get a little goofier, they get a little wackier, they start embracing a lot more stuff. And yeah, boy, if Adam West wasn't that, that yeah, exactly, Dan, that bam, pow, zip, zap, zap method of Batmaning, that bright technicolor Dutch-angled mess of glorious, and can we talk about the villains in there for a second? I mean, in that movie that we're referencing here, you've got Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, you've got Cesar Romero's Joker, you've got Lee Merriweather's excellent Catwoman, and maybe my personal favorite, Frank Gorshin's just absurd Riddler. He's just such a, a noodle in, in, in this movie. But I agree, too, that it doesn't quite uh, hold up, even if the, you know, and that's the beauty of it, though. At, watching it as a kid, it's deadly serious, and that is the way Batman and Robin talk, and everything makes perfect sense. And then you circle back as an adult and it's like, oh, wow, if I had a drink with this, this would actually be pretty funny. It just speaks to the timelessness of Batman, I suppose. Uh, and actually, I, one, the, I think, remaining uh, notable adaptation that we haven't uh, mentioned yet is uh, Michael Keaton from 1989. The Tim Burton uh, first being to tackle uh, on a large scale. You know, Batman had been in uh, movie serials before in the 30s and stuff like that. And 
Um, I wouldn't go after those. They're not classics by any means. The guys wearing the bat suits look sort of like they're wearing faded jester hats. It's not, it's not pretty. But Michael Keaton's uh, Batman is, a, is a, a notable one because the story is, um, spoiler alert for, you know, a 30-year-old movie, but um, the, the story of the Joker having been the one, having a direct hand in Batman's creation um, remains unique. That's uh, as a Batman adaptation that's still, even in comics, that, that's rarely trodden. So it, it stands as kind of an interesting experiment um, and largely succeeds. I think uh, Michael Keaton's Batman is a, is a good one. Um, he portrays a very different Bruce Wayne. He, he, it's uh, a little less of the, he's much more quirky in public, but it also feels more honest. And he does have sort of a snap to darker side, uh, kind of, a, you know, you can almost see his, like a trauma victim, rea victim reaction when he's in the, uh, when Joker reveals himself to the public the first time and he starts bringing out the gunshots and he, he reacts viscerally as anybody would. And then, you know, he sort of has his Batman reaction, but Michael Keaton's Batman in, in 89 and again in Batman Returns is, uh, is notable too. And we're not going to talk too much about Ben Affleck because he was not bad, but um, he was maybe, let's say, the best part of the movies he was in. Gabe, I'm glad you mentioned Ben Affleck because that was the name that I thought of as you were talking about Michael Keaton because I found it interesting. When Ben Affleck was cast as Batman, there was a whole slew of social media vitriol, right? Nobody liked this, this casting choice. And as I was doing just a little bit of research in advance of this episode, I found it very interesting to note, and I didn't know this at the time, only being eight years old when the 1989 Batman came out, that the casting of Michael Keaton was despised as well because he was largely considered a comedic actor and they thought it was a very odd choice but then as fate would have it to your point Gabe it kind of worked out I, I find that really interesting because you're right he um and boy yeah in the annals of comic history it's good to know that the fans have just always freaked out when they haven't gotten their way that's not new to our era thank god but that is notable that yeah to that point Keaton was Mr. Mom he was Beetlejuice and actually I only saw that movie for the first time myself relatively recently and I swear, looking back now, it looks to me like Tim Burton is auditioning Keaton for playing the Joker. Um, and I think it ends up, I, I bet you, it ends up being like a studio mandated, mandated decision where like, you can have Michael Keaton, and if you want him to be the Joker, we need like Clint Eastwood as Batman. And if you want Michael Keaton and you want him as Bruce Wayne, then we need someone like, oh, I don't know, Jack Nicholson as the Joker to balance it out with draw power. But it ends up being, I think, an inspired choice. And yeah, Affleck is, uh, what really the power, the nice part about Affleck's presence on this list at all is, showcasing the various kinds of Batman that can exist, whether it's sort of the, the foppish, you know, rich dandy of the 60s Batman, uh, you know, the sort of yacht club boy, um, whether you've got, yeah, an animated, you know, Batman that's probably as true to comics as, as you pointed out, Josh, as we're going to get, whether it's, or whether it's Ben Affleck's, you know, sort of grumpy, defeated, broken Bat, which is also kind of interesting, or, you know, contrasted with, yeah, Christian Bale's kind of excellent soldier brawler Batman. Before we close this one out, I'd just like to give us a minute or two to gush a little more about how great the animated series is, because it's, it's, it really is, the, it's the single best adaptation um, of Batman, and maybe the single best, I'm just going to go out on that, well, all right, Lord of the Rings exists, so I can't say that, but it's among the pantheon of the single best adaptations from other media uh, ever derived on the, yeah, I mean, every, you're right, Josh, every episode is a comic book, it even has a cover on the title card, you know, and you, you peel it, it promises the action, you peel it back, and away we go. It's, you know, the, the style from Bruce Tim is in full effect. Um, it's got a bunch of great writers on there, a lot of whom wrote for comics in, in, uh, in the end anyway. And that show is so uh, influential. It even, it's responsible for the creation of Harley Quinn. She comes from that show. She does not exist in Batman comics before Batman the Animated Series. 
Um, the re there's a new origin for Mr. Freeze, the Heart of Ice episode that was mentioned. That uh, is a touching, tragic backstory, and that has become canon. Now, that's standard for Mr. Freeze now. He was a, a goof with a cold gun in 66, and yeah, you put him in uh, into the 90s, and all of a sudden he's, uh, he's a man with, you know, something to him, and he's voiced by Kang himself, Michael Ansara. Just a nice job all around, guys. I, I, I'm, I, anything you'd like to say more about uh, animated series or anything before we wrap this one up? I think we've, we've named most of our, and we should point out, these are the notable versions of Batman to us. I think it's very clear from all of, uh, at least Josh Jordan and myself, we are not terribly well-versed in the Batman comics, pretty well-versed in the animated series. We've seen the movies a handful of times, but as it relates to comics or video games or anything, Adam West and earlier, yeah, not we're not terribly familiar with any of that. So I, I think we've done a pretty good job of outlining the notable Batman that we're familiar with. Yeah, no, in no way are we being objective about this. This is purely subjective to us. That's the fun of this. And for listeners that join us, hi guys, you're making sure you're still with us. No, that's a great stuff all around guys. And um, I think I, I wanna hand over, uh, actually I wanna give this first point to Jordan because he brought up uh, something that I actually, I wanted to touch on that went unnoticed. Um, Batman the Animated Series, that one other piece of its influence is there is an entire animation studio, effectively, at Warner Brothers now that wouldn't exist if it weren't for this show's success early on. Year one, or I'm sorry, The Killing Joke that you mentioned, Jordan, is uh, not just a, you know, a, an influential story in its own right, but it's, uh, it's one of just a host of all kinds of animated DC work, uh, not just Batman, but that's been adapted over the years. Um, after Batman the Animated Series, comes Superman the Animated Series, comes the new Batman Adventures, comes the stellar Batman Beyond, which maybe we should actually deserve a point in our conversation at some point. But then you get Justice League, you get Justice League Unlimited, you get a huge amount of DC animated stuff that is uh, continues to this day, uh, actually. They're churning stuff out about a year each. Um, so one point to Jordan, well done for pointing out the just another great aspect of the legacy of the show that I hadn't thought about. And let's continue on to our two point question of our notable versions, uh, let's talk about what is it they get right about the Dark Knight, about Gotham, about the world of Batman. And Jordan, you got the point. We're going to start with you here. What do you think? Uh, first, Gabe, thanks for the point. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and talk uh, in a little bit more depth about the Christian Bale adaptation of Batman and what I feel like he gets right. And, and that film and the story... Um, and the writing of that character gets right about the character of Batman. I already talked about kind of the, the, the nuance that you get to the character, the backstory that you get to him. And that's not something that's unique only to the Christian Bale adaptation, but I think that they take it in a very unique way. And I think that's something that's very, very powerful about that. Obviously, another thing that the Christian Bale adaptation benefits from is just an absolutely stellar cast across all the films. You obviously have Christian Bale, who was, an, was a quality actor in his own right. You have Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, Liam Neeson, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Gary Oldman as uh, Commissioner Gordon, Heath Ledger, who we talked about in the past, uh, who, who I talked about in the past episode, who I believe is one of, if not for me, the best adaptation of the Joker. Um, Tom Hardy, Justin Gordon-Levitt, and Hathaway. Yeah, I mean, you just have an absolutely stellar cast. And another thing that I really liked about the Christian Bale adaptation of, the ba of Batman is also just the way that Gotham looks. Um, and this in part was something that I was reminded of as I 
unfortunately went back and watched uh, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin this past week, where Gotham in those two films is like, I mean, Dan, you mentioned earlier that like everything just reeks 90s there, but it also just felt like a Vegas, but even more on crack. Like it, like just an 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 incredibly exaggerated version of what Gotham could look like. And for the Christian Bale version, what I liked about it so much was that it, it kind of went back to its more urban roots. It, it felt like New York. It felt like New York City, which for me has always been sort of the the the, the pillar or the model of what you're looking for in terms of what Gotham should look like. So for me, those are three things. Um, that, that I feel like Christian Bale's adaptation really get right about the adaptation of Batman. Bale's performance is tremendous. One, one little wrinkle that, that, that I noticed, like it's, it's easy to think about, all right, if I'm going to have to portray Batman, I have to have Bruce Wayne and one character for this and Batman and one character for this. But Bale also has, has, really different performances for public Bruce Wayne versus private Bruce Wayne. There's a private Bruce Wayne with Alfred and with Lucius Fox that is really cool and, and funny and interesting. And that's where I think a lot of the nuance that Jordan was talking about happens is that private Bruce Wayne character, public Bruce Wayne uh, vacillates from being a buffoon to a playboy to an airhead i mean he's just you know he's he's all over the place and genuinely not to be taken seriously and of course batman is super serious all the time but private bruce wayne is is serious and haunted and a jerk at times uh but also warm and funny I thought that was something about Bale's performance that really impressed me is that he was able to clearly delineate those three identities and make them all really fun to watch. Josh is gunning for two points early here because this is something I, I saw we had uh, noted about this. And uh, honestly, it's something that had never in, in, in these words, and this makes so much sense to me, um, it, it had never occurred to me quite this way. Um, and I, I spoke earlier about Michael Keaton sort of playing a, more genuine trauma victim with the way he reacts to some of these things, with the, the way he sort of constructed his world to get through. And I think, I mean, that tragedy is at the core of Bruce Wayne. I mean, that's the, that's the foundational event of the Batman mythos is the murder of his, of his parents at that young age. And then later the oath. And, and it is interesting to see, and that's exactly what I think Christian Bale is doing there. That's, that is the nuance. It's how he's processed this tragedy. He is, he's a man of masks. You know, he's got a suit that he wears out in public. He's got a suit he wears at night. Um, and there's only a few people that ever actually maybe really see his face. I agree with you guys that Christian Bale's performance is a huge part of what makes those movies so effective and his portrayal of Batman so effective. And Josh, you mentioned his ability to fill different roles. And Gabe, you used the suit analogy, and I think that's incredibly appropriate. But I think another version of Batman that gets that delineation done really well is going back to the animated series because Bruce Wayne and Batman are two very different people in the animated series as well. Josh, you, you use the word playboy. That's, I mean, that's kind of what the animated series version of Bruce Wayne is. He's 
playful, he's comical, but yes, he's he's a little silly at times. He maybe doesn't know exactly what's going on with his business, even though he's this billionaire owner. But then you get involved in Batman and all of a sudden now, very stern, calm, poised, powerful. And one area where Christian Bale has been knocked for his Batman is the exaggerated Batman voice. And it, it goes up Spinal Tap style to 11 in The Dark Knight and then beyond that in Dark Knight Rises. But I thought the animated series, especially looking back on it now, did a really good job of creating two different voices, but not having them be exaggerated. You know, it's not that silly superhero gimmick where, oh my goodness, Clark Kent takes his glasses off and look, that looks like Superman. So it doesn't make it so obvious that these aren't very clearly the same person. The um, the voice uh, is a is a great example of all of this, and and I believe Kevin Conroy, as you cited, Dan, the, the voice actor for Bruce Wayne and Batman in the animated series, I believe he's the first actor to actually approach the role with two distinct voices. Even Michael Keaton before him kind of only dropped his voice to a whisper when he was the Batman. So you know, it's still sort of maintaining that air of mystery, but he didn't really change the voice. He just sort of dropped it a little bit. There's a a, a great scene in a, a movie called uh, Neighbors. I believe, where you've got uh, Zac Efron, who's sort of a young college kid, and he's talking to um, Joe, uh, not Jonah Hill, <laughs> Seth Rogen, their neighbor, about their favorite versions of Batman. And each one is, you know, Seth Rogen, the older one, is defending Michael Keaton as his Batman. And Zac Efron, the younger one, is defending Christian Bale as his Batman. And so they're both, I'm Batman. No, no, I'm Batman. Uh, no, this is, I'm, I'm Batman. No, I'm, I'm Batman. And Kevin Conroy is, I mean, his work can't go... He, he did create two completely different, and it's interesting too, because you can see even occasionally in the garb of Bruce Wayne, he'll go into the Batman voice, if it's just him and Alfred, if it's just him and Dick Grayson. And to this day, I think somebody else mentioned it again, but even as I'm reading the comics, there's a handful of voices, pretty much all from the animated series that are still in my head. One of them, just to bear mentioning too, uh, as great as Heath Ledger is and forever will be, I have to always give credit where it's due to Mark Hamill's Joker that boy, maybe the only thing I could give him a run for his money. And speaking of uh, the Joker, we were rattling off animated series titles earlier. The Laughing Fish is another tremendous episode, which I think actually was pulled straight from a comic book. <laughs> so thinking about the, the Batman voice, as I was kind of trying to dissect the choices that Conroy versus Bale made, was I think that Bale clearly exaggerated the Batman voice. I think Conroy's choice was maybe to exaggerate the Bruce Wayne voice a little bit. And that's why the Batman voice, we're a little more comfortable with his Batman voice. Uh, Conroy's Bruce Wayne is, I think, a bit more highfalutin, absent-minded. You know, I... He's kind of just here for a good time. Yeah, and, and... and and a bit clueless, and I I, I really don't like, and I, and I I think if that were if that voice actually belonged to a human being all the time, the odds of them becoming this you know billionaire successful businessman are pretty slim. Um, now it's a cartoon, so whatever, and. Bruce Wayne is not on screen for anywhere near as much time as Batman is in those. So I think it was clearly the right choice, but I think that was kind of where I landed on the Batman voice question is that 
Bale decided that when I'm Bruce Wayne, I'm going to give the more realistic uh, voice. Even when I'm being the playboy, I'm going to be cool about it and I'm going to be believable about it. Um, and then I'm going to exaggerate it when I'm Batman. I think part of this too, I mean, obviously there are like just production differences here. Kevin Conroy is able to stand with a cup of tea in a recording booth so he can do whatever he needs to his voice and he doesn't have to worry about moving. He just has to, you know, give the lines, you know, that's, that's, a, it's a visual medium. That's pretty much, you know, for the artist, but yeah, as the performer, all he's got to do really is stand there. And what you're saying about, I mean, yeah, obviously I can't stand here and just straight up defend the Christian Bale voices being not over the top. It absolutely is. As dad said, goes right to 11, but I'm going to try a little bit. I think part of this too is you, you mentioned Josh that Bruce turns up sort of everything on on his Batman voice that his Bruce is you know it, that's the more regular you know just straight up human but he does in Batman Begins say that he has to become something elemental something terrifying he is trying to you know become the shadow kind of a thing you know and and I think in another sense I talked about you know the trauma at the root of Batman and I think that's sort of where it comes out like that's it's like his rock star growl you know all of that's trying to come out of that does it always work no but i think at least that's some of the thought behind it you know for this guy that is this is a this is a rage driven batman you know it's eventually he learns that that's not going to be enough but yeah his is a deep-seated place of pain and rage that's where i think a lot of his bruce wayne came from yeah i think that the, the batman voice for bale is a definitely defensible choice for the actor and i think it works really good a lot of the time it's just in those two or three places like especially at the at the end of Dark Knight, where it, it goes a bit too far. Where's the trigger? You never give it to an ordinary citizen. It's, I think I got it right. I think that's a direct quote. I I thought you just pressed play on 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 your TV right now. I was unaware that Christian Bale was the newest member of Dorkfest the podcast. Uh, I just wanted to piggyback off of Gabe mentioned a word movement as it related to Kevin Conroy versus Christian Bale being able to perform Batman. And the word movement reminded me of something else that helps the Christian Bale performance, and that is his ability to move his neck, which up until that point was not a thing that Batman really was able to do, right? Full plot point in The Dark Knight. No, they, yeah, they, I mean, you can see it in the Keaton version there in the scene when uh, the Joker's created when they're at Axis Chemicals, you know, Batman has to do a couple of sharp turns as he's getting cornered and poor Keaton has to turn his entire body in order to actually, you know, turn around. And yeah, it was specifically asked for and then addressed in the script that Christian Bale could turn his head. I think the line was, it would sure make backing down the driveway easier. That, that's exactly right. And and they turn it into a joke. And of course, we all get the inside joke because we know Michael Keaton couldn't do it and Val Kilmer couldn't turn his neck and George Clooney couldn't do the same. And it reminded me of those other performances. And it got me thinking about, okay, we all love the animated series and we love the new Batman trilogy with Christian Bale. Okay, those those things are all are all wonderful. So is there anything redeemable from... Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. And I can't speak to Batman and Robin because I don't currently recall anything redeemable. But when I think about Batman Forever and Jordan, you talked a lot about the look of that movie and like Las Vegas on crack, but also I think it's important to remember when that movie came out. So think about 
Batman movies in that time frame compared to Batman movies that we get now. And think about James Bond movies that we got in the mid to late 90s and the way James Bond movies look now. Like that over-the-top, almost cartoony, comic booky approach that is a reason why The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day are not among my favorite Bond movies. But that's that was the style then. And it at least plays a lot better in a movie based on a comic book, which is what you're looking at in Batman Forever, than it does, you know, James Bond and his invisible car and die another day. Then all of a sudden we enter a new millennium and things are just generally on TV and in movies and in the world a lot grittier and a lot harsher and seemingly a lot more real. And that's when we get Jason Bourne and that's when we get Daniel Craig's James Bond and that's when we get Christian Bale's Batman. So I think it's just important to kind of hop back in the Wayback Machine and sort of think about other movies that were going on in that time. It doesn't make Val Kilmer's completely apathetic performance any more or less acceptable because in a prior podcast, I questioned uh, did Michael Lonsdale's portrayal of Hugo Drax, did he have a pulse? Did Val Kilmer's portrayal of Batman, did he have a pulse? But I think there are some decent things that come out of that movie. Unfortunately, they're not Batman related, they're villain related. And I actually think even though by all accounts, Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face and Jim Carrey as Riddler hated each other, and it mostly, I think, was a one-way street of Tommy Lee Jones not respecting, I believe the word he used was buffoonery as it relates to Jim Carrey's then work as Ace Ventura, the pet detective. He didn't take that seriously. But I thought, you know, yes, they're constantly trying to one-up one another in that movie. But the Edward Nigma kind of backstory that we get with Jim Carrey, I think, is actually pretty interesting. And you get two first-class actors at the peak of their career in Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey. And I think that's at least something positive that you can take out of that, out of that particular uh, film. Yeah, Dan, you're right that th there are potentially a small handful of redeemable things about Batman Forever. None of them have anything to do with the character of Batman, which, you know, as you said, is the, is the real problem. Um, Val Kilmer's perform performance is absolutely lifeless. As you pointed out, he has no pulse. Talking about the version of Batman that we see in Batman and Robin, um, I can't quite put my finger on it, but George Clooney just isn't Batman. He just didn't feel like a Batman. And maybe it's because- It's because he's George Clooney. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was just gonna say, maybe that's because we think of George Clooney as a bit of a, you know, thinking about him as, in, in the Ocean's Eleven movies, thinking of him as Danny Ocean, you kind of have that playboy nature already. So he works as Bruce Wayne, but doesn't work as Batman. It's too difficult to, to separate that. And Dan, I think you're absolutely right that the performance of Timely Jones and the performance of Jim Carrey as the Riddler are very admirable additions to that movie. The problem is that everything else around them is just such a dumpster fire that it's, 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 difficult, to, it's difficult to look at and not think I'm only looking at these things because they're on fire. The dumpster fire is a pretty accurate term, certainly about as colorful as one. I will say that, yeah, if we're comparing you know, timely Bond movies of the age to Batman movies of the age, I mean, Tomorrow Never Dies beats the pants off of Batman and Robin. I mean, and that's without breaking a sweat. That's, that's, before, the, that's before Tomorrow Never Dies rolls as a song. 
you know, we talked about this is a Batman podcast, but Batman has, you know, so much of who and the greatness of Batman's story is, you know, around the characters around him as well. Um, I think uh, Michael Gow's Alfred deserves a shout out there. That's a really soulful portrayal, actually, of, um, of uh, you know, Batman's faithful companion. And, um, yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's Jim Carrey doing completely Jim Carrey era stuff as the Riddler, but it is a notable performance, and it kind of fits with the, certainly he fits in that neon world that's around there. There is one fan theory I like that uh, the, the huge differences in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin are explained by those being movies made by people within Tim Burton's Batman universe. So whoever was in Gotham City, you know, watching Michael Keaton's Batman go around, one of them was like, we should make a movie about this guy. And those resulted movies were Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. I do want to take just a moment to defend Val Kilmer only slightly. Everybody else in that movie is so over the top. I mean, Jim Carrey is technicolor on steroids, something stronger than steroids is the Riddler. But Tommy Lee Jones's Two-Face is out there too. Like the animated series Two-Face, you know, brings it back and forth from reserve to crazy. Tommy Lee Jones is pretty much all crazy all the time. Uh, Chris O'Donnell is a hothead as, as Robin. You know, I, I, I think it's a defensible choice by Val Kilmer, the actor, to say, like, I'm going to be the reserved one. And that certainly fits Bruce Wayne and Batman, in my opinion. There's nothing dynamic about the performance. There's nothing engaging about the performance. But I don't think it's bad. I, I just, it, you know, it's it's vanilla. And, you know, while while that doesn't make it great, I don't think that makes it awful either. Yeah, Josh, I think there's, I think that's a defensible take. Um, I think the issue that you brought up that I agree with is that it's okay if he's going to then be playing the more reserved role because everything else around him is so bright, but there can still be, to use a word that I used earlier, nuance to that. There can still be dynamic there can still be a dynamic nature to that more reserved character, but all we get is a reserved character who, for all intents and purposes, seems to just not want to be there. You know, not talking so much about those two versions of Batman. I did want to go back to one thing that Dan was talking about, though, in introducing those two iterations of Batman. And Dan, you talked about how they were over the top and sort of comic booky. And I think that started back with the Tim Burton versions of them, specifically Batman Returns. Um, Rewatching that this past week, you know, you're struck, and Gabe, I think you mentioned this earlier, Batman Returns is probably more of a Tim Burton movie than it is a Batman movie. As I, as I rewatched that this week, I really, I was struck by that, oh, you really Tim Burton this thing. And that works with sort of the over-the-top nature that you will get in, in, in comic books. So, you know, while Batman Forever and Batman and Robin may have taken that in the direction that then we then end up seeing it in the Christian Bale trilogy, they were really kind of just picking up the baton where it was left off from the Michael Keaton versions. It's a host of great stuff again, guys. And we've got a whole Bat family of good points uh, amongst the four of us here. It's, you're making it difficult as ever to give two points to you and your gallant crew here. You know, I, I think I, for the, just the sheer audacity of it, because they're not good movies, but two points to Dan for trying in vain to at least give some shit. And you know what? We, had, we get a good Alfred out of it. We get a few things out of that. You, two points there, uh, Daniel, for, for your mustard defense. 
And I didn't even have to bribe you with the bat card. Never leave the bat cave without it. I, I will take these points back. Yeah, just keep talking. I'm are, done. Are we, re- are we really going to ignore the fact that, that part of this may also be based on the fact that, the, that one of the central songs of Batman Forever is, in fact, written and performed by, by, by Gabe's favorite band? Are we, are we, not, are we just going to forget that potentially Dan may have been leaving that in there? I'm talking, of course, about you, too that Dan may have been just, you know, leaving that in there as a way to potentially bribe the moderator. I was just going to say, Dan is well aware of my deep and abiding love for Seal's Kiss from a Rose. Correct. Yeah. Unfortunately for Gabe's beloved U2, the most famous song that came out of that movie was not Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. It was, which is a tremendous song, song and one that Gabe and I saw in concert and which is probably why he's remembering that and giving me the two points. But yeah, Seal's Kiss by a Rose was a way bigger song that came out of that movie. In fact, if we go back, I think actually that whole album that was assembled, you know, not, it, it's probably that insipid songs inspired by, quote unquote, but it's really just like, what can we append to a, the Batman label so it sells? But that album's pretty good. Yeah, Gabe, you're, you're actually, I'm sure you're right. It's inspired by and very few of the songs on that so-called soundtrack actually appeared in the movie but it's actually not too bad and is as you so eloquently noted in awarding me two points uh one of the rare good things about that movie all right points given i want to uh i want to uh round us out we're gonna go into our three-point question and this is uh it might be a little bit of density in here so take a breath folks we're uh we're going back out on patrol into the night what is it that makes Batman work? Here we are, we're talking, about, we're talking about a half dozen different movies and some TV shows and things that have run for years. And no matter how bad, I may, how some, how bad some of these movies might be and how much I make fun of them, every single one of the movies we were talking about made money in record amounts for the years they came out. Batman sells. You know, the, the Batman phenomena, the Batmania of the summer I was born, 89, maybe that has something to do with it, um, was huge. That was, that, that, showed the way that proved the way for the modern superhero blockbuster and it would be batman again that reinvents it in 2005 three years before marvel comes onto the screen with iron man to reinvent it again but at that point everybody's drawing from the template that is batman begins because of how well it grounds the hero in that universe so after all these years after after 81 years of batman and 80 years of just about everybody else what is it that keeps this character ticking What is it about Batman that works? Dan, we're going to start with you. I think part of what makes Batman so successful is the aesthetic look of Batman. And I'm going to lump into that Batman's accoutrement and Batman's supporting cast. So whether it is the animated series and the tremendous animation surrounding Batman and the rogues gallery of villains or the Batmobile itself, or then even going into the comic booky realm, the look of Batman, the look of those, you know, those villains in that nightclub Vegas setting. It's just something unique. It's something different than what we are accustomed to. Yes, sometimes it goes a little too cartoony, we're a little too comic booky, but I think there's an aesthetic look to Batman. It's almost like if you turned out the lights and just had that that silhouette, right? 
the caped cowl silhouette, I mean, that has to be right up there in terms of recognizable and ominous silhouettes right up there alongside Darth Vader. So Darth you've got this hero that doubles as kind of a scary guy. So he's got that cool aspect to him. I think the aesthetic look of, of Batman is certainly something that has made him stick through the years. And yes, maybe that doesn't apply quite so much to the Adam West version of Batman, but a very cool aesthetic for a lot of those villains. And I think that certainly has carried through into more modern iterations as well. I know. I think that's, I mean, yeah, just purely look alone. I mean, the bat suit is a, is a design classic and it hasn't changed all that much since 1939. Um, I mean, the basic shape, I mean, as you describe the silhouette, Dan, it is the cowl and the cape. I mean, those are the, the classic elements there. There's always a bat symbol of some type. You know, sometimes it's the yellow oval. I think that was designed by Carmine Infantino in the 50s uh, as part of the, a new look Batman. And um, sometimes it's just uh, the black bat symbol. And you can see that in the new Batman adventures, the, the redesign of his costume. Um, sometimes it's a raised plate. I think there's even a story where the metal bat symbol on the chest is the reforged gun that killed Thomas and Martha Wayne. So it's, there's a few things that change. Uh, you know, the belt, the utility belt often stays. Sometimes the underwear is there. Sometimes it's not. But yeah, no, not much has changed in a long time from, yeah, those, from those design classics. Yeah, well, and I think that's also interesting when you compare it to other comic book stories. Um, I'm thinking specifically about like X-Men, um, which is another comic book and, and stories that come out of that comic book that I love. But especially when you go from the page to the screen, you see a lot of changes in terms of the characters. You know, you even have Hugh Jackman making wisecracks about um, the lack of spandex in the costumes as you move into the movies. Um, so there is something to be said about the aesthetic because it is so lasting. Um, it, it, it's almost, it would be criminal to, to not use that. If you think about a series that you brought up earlier, Gabe, with Batman Beyond, um, you know, it's still the same same basic, basic yeah it's it's perhaps a bit sleeker which might fit with that time period but it's still the same basic basic costume now while i think you know the aesthetic in that being something that doesn't change but i think that is something that makes batman work i think also like all of the different versions that you get to see of batman that's another thing that makes this character work we talked a lot about the animated series earlier on i also mentioned batman the killing joke when I was rewatching that the other day, I found it interesting that you get almost like Batman the mentor. Um, you know, that, that story being a story told through the point of view of Batgirl. Uh, but then there's a one, you know, there's a specific line between the two of them that I think, you know, kind of speaks this idea of a mentor. He's saying to her at one point that like, you haven't been where I've been. You haven't been taken to the edge, to the abyss, to the place where you don't care anymore, where all hope dies. Now, this is complicated by some things that happen immediately after that interaction between those two characters. But I think in terms of what makes Batman work, part of what makes him work is the fact that you can have so many different types of characters, so many different types of Bruce Wayne, so many different types of Batman, um, so many different types of the Joker, so many different types of the Riddler, so many different types of Two-Face. Unfortunately, too many different versions of Mr. Freeze. You should have just stuck to one or two maybe, but not Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was horrible. He, um, yeah, The Killing Joke, uh, the book written by Alan Moore with art by Brian Ballin, that, um, that actually, all the Batgirl stuff does not exist in that book. That's like 48 pages of just Batman and the Joker and 
Um, mostly it's about the Joker torturing Jim Gordon. A lot of that has to do with Barbara Gordon, but yeah, a lot of the Batman, um, Batgirl stuff and that is, is invented for the, uh, for the sake of the film. But that said, the quote from Batman there is very reminiscent of a lot of stuff. Um, I'm thinking of something he uh, says actually to a, um, a character named Jason Todd, who is the second Robin killed by the Joker and then brought back to life because comic books. But at some point, Jason tracks down Joker, has him at gunpoint with Batman in the room, and he makes fun of him for that exact thing. He says something to the effect of, well, you, you can't bring yourself to cross that line, Bruce, because it would be so hard. And Bruce says, no, it would be, it would be too easy. Like at that point, you know, yeah, I can't tell you the number of times I've thought about killing this guy. Um, but it is, it is Batman's, in the, in the best iterations for me, that, that moral code, I think, is that bright line is one of the better things about Batman for me. Just in, And maybe, you know, to say whether or not it's a smart thing to let the Joker keep on killing folks and whatnot, at least in the world of the story, I think that's a really important distinction. And it's, and you know, that can get blurry too. And I think it, what we're talking about here is how elastic the very concept of Batman is. You can have detective noir stories you can have horror stories you can have psychological thrillers you can have action movies and stories you can have straight science fiction stuff batman's been to space he's fine batman does hard drugs he gets exposed to fear toxin on a regular basis to say nothing of joker venom but again and i think it is something too that that sense of the adventurer that he's capable and he's a human i think that goes a long way to his mortality yeah i think for for me the thing that makes batman work the most is that he is a superhero without superpowers you know the the utility belts all the gadgets the batmobile uh, clearly he has superior intellect and physical skills but in the end he is just a man he is a man with a lot of money and he is a man with with a unique past that has put him on this course you know he 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 is this ultimate expression of what a human being can be in some ways i i was thinking of him almost as the american version of james bond only without quite so much of the the baggage that we've talked about in a in a previous podcast but yeah i I think that is a huge thing a part of what makes uh makes batman work over time and gabe i do want to echo what you were saying about the versatility of the storytelling Uh, batman can be a fun, goofy adventure for kids. It can be a slightly more serious, but also safe adventure for uh, young teenagers. And it can be a gritty drama for adults. It it works in all three mediums. And and Gabe, as you were saying, and Jordan with the killing joke, that movie and, and book are incredibly dark but also the ending is legitimately funny. The last exchange between the Batman and, and Joker, the, the joke, really brought a smile to my face how, how, how funny that, that was, but also human, that, that moment between those two. This is a, a character that can inhabit so many different stories and and maybe the the humanity is is a part of why he's able to uh, adapt that way and josh i think that last point that you make about the la- that 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 final joke in the killing joke speaks to another thing that's so notable and makes batman work which is that you know in that moment with the joker they are laughing together because they are both outcasts they are both different so you know even when you were talking about batman sort of being this like pinnacle of human achievement 
even if he is all of those things, he still exists on the outskirts. He still, he can't have a normal life just as Joker for entirely different reasons and two entirely different ends also can't have a normal life. And there's something engaging. There's something relatable about watching someone like that. I think another thing that makes him relatable, and I think it's another big reason why the character works as well as it does and works as well as it has for so many years. Josh, you mentioned that he's a superhero with no powers. You know, he's just a man with a lot of resources at his disposal, but he also can tend towards that anti-hero role at times as well. I mean, this is effectively a vigilante character who takes the law into his own hands on a number of occasions. And long before we saw on the big screen the dilemma of society accepting Marvel superheroes and what they mean for our society and them taking the law into their own hands and what does that mean for all of us, Batman was doing that long before, again, on on the big screen. And, you know, law enforcement officers are often wondering, hey, look, like, what's this guy doing? And Commissioner Gordon kind of has his back for the most part, but it's sort of, they have that kind of relationship where, hey, look, don't put me in a position where I've got to bring the hammer down on you. Because at the end of the day, we both sort of know that some of the things going on here aren't exactly on the level, but if you're keeping the streets clean, I guess maybe we can look the other way, which in our current circumstances brings up a whole different can of worms and tomatoes. But yeah, I think the idea that he is a superhero who's not perfect, he's a hero who has anti-hero tendencies. We want our heroes to be relatable, right? We want our heroes to be these, the pinnacle of human achievement, but also we want to know that that could be me. If only I had a billion dollars and a, and a cape and a cowl, I could be Batman. And two dead parents. Just don't use hockey pads. <laughs> no, Dan, that's a great point. And I think that uh, it comes just in time too, as we are on the edge of extolling over much the virtues of the bat. Uh, yeah, he can also be kind of, a bad man, if you will. Um, I mean, Bruce Wayne is flawed. I mean, we, we spoke of, you know, spoken of the trauma that the, at the, you know, the foundation of his life. And, um, you know, he's gone a long way toward repairing, toward them, um, you know, repairing and, and healing and all that. But the best way through is not necessarily, you know, punching the disadvantaged at night. And, you know, certainly there's arguments in, in this, you know, as we've uh, evolved over the years that, uh, that there's maybe better things Bruce Wayne could be doing with his money. And actually, you know, true to form in the comics that has, that has taken root, but um, uh, no, the, the flaws of him, the, all the things that we do love about Batman are tempered by the fact that, you know, the, all the humanity we love about him is tempered by that very same humanity. You know, he is afraid of losing loved ones in life, so he works alone. That's where some people, that's where maybe he even thinks he works best. But where would these Batman stories be without Commissioner Gordon, without Alfred, without Robin, Batgirl, Batwoman, any of the, you know, peers that have taken up the Harvey Bullock, uh, Catwoman on a lot of occasions, you know, I mean, it's, as much of a loner as he is, you know, at the, you strip everything else from the core of Batman, you're left with somebody who doesn't want to see anybody else die, and he needs a family around him to replace the, the one he lost. 
Gabe, I'm glad you mentioned Bullock. He's one of my favorite characters from the animated series. The the the, the cop who hates Batman just because he's kind of like getting too much credit. But I'm not so sure that Robin ever brings that much to the table, to be totally honest with you. That'll be my hot take for, for this podcast, is that Robin, we can we, we could do without. Uh, I will fight you all day long on that one, but any takers, anybody else want to throw their hat in the ring here before, before we do that? To quote Captain America, before we begin, does anybody else want to get out? I think Robin is a necessary character for Batman as the story moves along because until Robin is introduced, what are the stakes for Bruce Wayne and Batman should things go south? Gabe pointed out he has no family. He's got Alfred and the ties to him. You'd have to dig real deep to find the Batcave and find Alfred. But now all of a sudden you throw Robin into the mix and Robin is Dick Grayson, right? Dick Grayson is a real person. So if all of a sudden we go out on an adventure here and try and solve crime or stop some bad guys and things don't go well, now it's not just me, Batman, Bruce Wayne that pays the price. It's somebody else too. And I think that incorporates a very essential moral dilemma, if not at least a moral conversation that Batman, AKA Bruce Wayne has to deal with. Well, and I think it speaks to that mentorship aspect that I was talking about earlier. As I was watching the killing joke and seeing sort of the mentorship relationships that's building between Batman and Batgirl, it, it reminded me of what you saw what you saw the directors and the actors attempting in Batman and Robin. The film is very much based around the idea of Batman trying to protect Robin, as you were saying, Dan. So yeah, it absolutely raises the stakes. And if you remove that, then yeah, there are still some stakes. There's Alfred, but I don't know. I'm a bit torn on this. I, I think, yes, he's a necessary character, but I think ultimately I agree with you, Josh, that that the, the positives don't outweigh the, 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 the negatives when it comes to Robin. Yeah, I, I just think, Dan, you've done a really good job of explaining why a character like Robin could be good. I didn't hear any examples of when specifically he was good. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of George Clooney and Chris O'Donnell fighting over Poison Ivy. I'm thinking of the animated series when the, the, the Riddler captures, snags Robin in this weird sort of tube thing that he shoots out of his cane and, and Robin's response is, hey, get me out of this thing. Like, I, I just don't think he's ever done that good. Um, I, I fully admit that, yeah, most media, um, I, I, I think the animated series does the best job with it so far. Um, I also really like Lauren Lester's Dick Grayson persona. I like how he approaches the role. But uh, yeah, certainly Chris O'Donnell was not the Dick Grayson anybody hoped for. Uh, I think that's as much due to the writing and the story as, you know, anything else. But um, nobody's figured out how to make Robin work so far. But I think um, there is, to, to piggyback off the necessity idea, the third Robin, Tim Drake, who was Robin by the time of the new Batman Adventures, the, the little Robin, by which time Dick Grayson had become Nightwing. That's comics for you folks, and cartoons in this case. He, he thought that Batman needed a Robin to balance out the dark. He needed a splash of light to try and keep things from getting, and I think that's true in story form, or, you know, and, and you know, even in 
in life. You know, you need somebody to, to watch your back. You know, Bruce can, you know, in stories, how often, even in the animated series, you know, Batman goes off on patrol for hours, nights at a time without going for sleep. And, you know, there's Alfred to look after him. But, you know, he needs somebody to maybe watch his back out there. And I think, too, especially with Dick Grayson's story, what Batman sees is a chance to do his own story over right. You know, here's another orphan who's supremely talented. He's lost his parents, you know, in, in a way he's got, with the exception of his developed skills, he's got less than Bruce did at that point. You know, he's got nothing to fall back on. So in a way it's, it's a way for Bruce to heal. Um, but it's also true that, uh, and there's a recent Joker storyline uh, called death of the family where Joker comes for every member of the Bat family in turn, because he thinks they do weaken Batman as, as you sort of point out with the Riddler example, Josh, it's uh, Robin's a target, you know, especially in all those bright colors, you know, he, he can be a distraction. He can be a liability. And if anybody's curious, we're up to about five or six canonical Robins in, uh, in the comics. Uh, right now it's Batman's son, Damian Wayne, and uh, pretty much everybody else is, uh, there's a lot of other sidekicks and there's some alternate world Robins, but I won't bore you much with those details. I've done enough of that already. But no, just to say that I think Robin is, it, integral is, you know, it, even if something has been done forever, it doesn't mean it should continue to be doing, but I think Robin brings something valuable to the Bat story. But again, you know, this is at the, uh, that's at the risk of ignoring the great commissioners Gordon we've had. Gary Oldman was brought up. Um, again, I, I still hear a lot of Gordon's voice uh, from the animated series in, uh, in my head. Cops in general, I think Renee Montoya is a character that's in uh, on the animated series. She's a, she's a really cool character. And yeah, I mean, Catwoman, I mean, you talk about noir tropes, the femme fatale of, uh, of all this. You know, she's a great part of, of Bruce's story. Right, speaking of femme fatale, Talia al Ghul at the same point. Let's talk about Raz al Ghul. You know, let's talk about the villains of Batman's world and how much we've, we touched on this a little bit in our Villains podcast. But as we indicated, boy, you, you can't find a deeper roster of a rogues gallery. Everybody's a slam dunk. And with that, Gabe, I think you're kind of, you know, circling back to the, the weakness of Robin may be actually more about the strengths of all of these other characters surrounding Batman than purely the weakness of that character. Yeah, I think one of the strengths of, of Batman as a character and, and more to the point, I guess, as a series is the supporting cast, whether it's Commissioner Gordon, Robin, Nightwing, you know, Barbara Gordon, Oracle, or you get into the villains. And rogues gallery is an excellent turn of phrase, Gabe. And it's one I've stolen from you yeah. earlier in this podcast because it's, it's very appropriate. And I mean, we could have our own episode just discussing Batman villains and exclusively how they come to life in Batman the Animated Series. And we would have no problem filling an entire podcast and then some talking about all those characters, the cool look, um, the backstories behind them. So I think that supporting cast really helps Batman. It helps when you have a great anchor of Batman, whether that's Christian Bale, whether that's Kevin Conroy, but then even subpar performances, Val Kilmer, can be elevated by Jim Carrey's Riddler and Tommy Lee Jones's Two-Face. You can have those situations where the supporting cast really can outweigh and, and lift up if you're not so certain about your Batman performance. Yeah, and maybe that's what ultimately sinks Batman and Robin so tragically is that they, they don't succeed with, with those villains. Schwarzenegger, as we've already said, is a, an abomination as Mr. Freeze, but Uma Thurman is not terribly dynamic as Poison Ivy either. 
I might fight that a bit. I, I find the Poison Ivy backstory to be interesting in the way that they took that. Um, I find like the different characters that she inhabits during that to be to be interesting. I almost wish that you'd had a little bit more of like the scientist Poison Ivy extend further throughout that movie as opposed to just the lustful Poison Ivy that you get at the end. I, I feel like there was more that could have been done with that. And I think, you know, more to the point, Josh, what's just unfortunate about that is that even if Uma Thurman's Poison Ivy was redeemable, it's brought down by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's brought down by a Bane that only grunts. It's brought down by George Clooney. It, you know, it, it's just brought down by so many other components of the dumpster fire that I mentioned earlier. Like, you, you can't see anything in there because everything's in flames. And Poison Ivy in the animated series is a terrific villain and is really timely as like the sort of environmental terrorist. Like that's a really a storyline for a villain that was really probably ahead of its time in the animated series and in the comic books. And they really abandon it in, in Batman and Robin. Yeah, abandons the word. That, that, that's, a, that's a part of the storyline for the first 30 minutes and totally forgotten by the end to to its detriment you know the movies have done really interesting jobs by and large and i, I use that word interestingly intentionally <laughs> because some are great and some are terrible and we're talking like we're definitely talking with batman and robin about the terrible end of the spectrum it's a waste of bane i do think for her part uma thurman is maybe the only performer in the movie that knows what movie she's in um i think everybody else is trying too many different things that just aren't working that is not to excuse how bad poison ivy is in this uh, yeah, Batman and Robin is is legitimately terrible. Jim Carrey's Riddler was brought up earlier, and I'm curious to see, uh, especially in, in the way that we sort of see modernized or alternate take, realistic, quote-unquote, versions of a lot of these villains from the Nolan universe, uh, from Christian Bale's Batman. Presumably, uh, uh, reportedly, rather, uh, the Riddler is going to be one of the main villains in Matt Reeves' upcoming The Batman, which is going to be our next big screen take on The Batman. Um, so you can't argue with that title. Uh, he'll be played by Robert Pattinson, he of uh, Harry Potter and Twilight fame, most infamously, but he's done a whole host of other stuff. He's way more versatile than his popular rap sheet would recommend, and I'm very curious to see what he can do on what I hope is going to be a much more detective-driven take on the Batman than what we've seen in years past. And Gabe, please correct me if I'm wrong here, but is not Paul Dano slated to play the Riddler? Because that intrigues me a heck of a lot more than the Batman casting choice. It's a really good cast. Um, in addition, Paul Dano is is going to be Riddler. Um, I believe Colin Farrell is in, and, and I don't know if it's as Oswald Cobblepot or as the Penguin. It may be both. It may be one or the other. But that's Colin Farrell, and I'm very curious to see what he does. In the video games that you mentioned earlier, the Penguin sort of reinvented as a kind of British mob boss. Uh, they, might, they may go that route with him. Uh, Zoe Kravitz is going to be Selena Kyle. I think that's a good choice. Um, and you also have, this is maybe my, my personal favorite one, Jeffrey Wright is going to be Commissioner Gordon. Um, and I think that's, oh, no, I forgot. That's my second favorite. My favorite one is that Andy Serkis is playing Alfred, which, like, I just think that's, boy, spot on. So I'm very curious to see what this, what we'll be talking about about this iteration in a little while here. Uh, that'll, be, uh, that'll be fun to circle back on whenever the hell that finally gets released. Speaking of things we could have our dedicate a whole podcast to, Andy Serkis. And, and you know what? Maybe we should, honestly. We could fill, dorks or not, we could fill several episodes with his work, I bet. And, you know, with your guys' work, too. This is, uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this this chat here with you, fellas. It's uh, any excuse to talk Batman. 
especially with a captive audience, is one that I just can't, I just can't pass up personally. Um, and as far as points divvying out, you do this to me every time, and I think I have to do it this time because um, it's tough to, it's tough to say. Uh, Jordan, your analysis via the Killing Joke movie is, I, I enjoyed a lot of that. I think you pulled out a particularly pertinent quote. Um, Josh, the American James Bond superhero with no superpowers, the, your basis there is, um, is absolutely spot on. It's one of the things that keeps the Dark Knight eternally cool, that he can just do it. And then Dan, at the same time, the argument that he is, that he is at odds with all of that still, that he is uh, flawed. He is, he's a vigilante. He's got that anti-hero thing going on that, uh, you know, good guy, bad guy, gray zone type of thing. I, I think I've got to give you each a point, which to my mind crowns Dan the winner of this Dorkfest. Hell has officially frozen over. Chill out, everybody. Ice to meet you. I rescind these points immediately. You two can share Dan's crown. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Again, we can, we can talk for ages here about The Dark Knight. We can talk for ages about so many things here, and we're glad that you keep coming back to listen to us at all talk about anything. We greatly enjoy it. Uh, we greatly appreciate you passing through this tour of Dorkham Asylum, or I guess that's, uh, that's Dorkfest, the podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. Please rate, review, subscribe, or shine a light in the sky. We'll answer the call. You'll find our fingerprints all over Apple, Google, Spotify, the Carver Media Group, wherever you enjoy your podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. Don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman.